let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that as we come to worship you and praise your name, that your Holy Spirit is moving in this place. And Lord, as we come to open up your word, we just ask that your spirit will speak through it and apply the truth of it to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier, Philip read the first 12 verses of John chapter 2. It is a passage that we know very well. It's often a favorite for ministers to use at wedding. For this portion of scripture, which recounts Jesus turning water into wine, the first of, his seven, the, first of the seven signs is recorded by John, has much deeper significance. When reading John's gospel, it is important to realize that it contains a lot of allusions to the Old Testament. In regard to Jesus' signs, there is a close association with the book of Exodus. In line with the other gospel writers, John sees the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as initiating the new Exodus. Indeed, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is the ultimate Passover sacrifice. He dies in order that we may be reconciled to God. Here in chapter 2, John provides us with an account of a wedding celebration taking place in Cana in Galilee. We read at the start of verse 1 of chapter 2 that it is the third day. But if you inclusively account the next day references which Christoph spoke of in chapter 1 last week, we actually skip forward to the seventh day. Just as with the creation story in Genesis John and his narrative is most likely pointing to the new creation, not in the sense of the physical creation of the world, but of a new creation in the hearts of people where Jesus transforms them. In terms of the wedding here, John doesn't feel it necessary to inform us whose wedding it actually is, but what he does tell us that the couple getting married have invited Jesus, his disciples, and furthermore, Jesus' mother is also in attendance, so we must assume that they must have all known each other quite well. For the vast majority of you gathered here this morning, I'm assuming that you're married. And as you know, I'm not. So I'm not going to pretend to know anything about marriage preparation. But I think it's fair enough to make the statement that for many of you who are married, there must have been a degree of nervous anticipation associated with your wedding. I'm assuming particularly for the bride and their family as preparations are put into place. And a wedding is undoubtedly a joyous celebration, one that you desire to be fondly remembered by all in attendance. And perhaps the one particular day where you wanted everything to run like clockwork and everything to be perfect down to the finest detail. And I'm quite sure that that same sort of nervous anticipation was felt in first century Palestine. Unlike today where the norm is for the couple to have the marriage ceremony, followed immediately by the reception before quickly departing on honeymoon to some exotic destination, the Hebrew wedding was very different. Typically, the ceremony took place at night, late in the evening, and it was followed immediately by a feast. And after the ceremony, the bride and groom were taken to their home in a candlelit procession, so the people would have the opportunity to wish them well. But then instead of the honeymoon, the couple would have an open house for seven days. And for the duration of that time, they were treated like royalty. They were the king and queen, even wore crowns. And in fact, anything that they said was taken as law, and people at that wedding had to, to undertake their word as law. It all sounds very intriguing. 
And I would say that it was truly the ultimate occasion for most of these people, because the major for the majority of these husbands and wives, never again would they have encountered as much celebration or importance in their lives. Undoubtedly, the wedding feast recounted here in John chapter 2 was in full flow, with everyone, including Jesus, having a great time. It's very unlikely this would have been a, a straightly a somber affair. Jewish culture doesn't point to that type of wedding celebration. This is much more likely to have been a party full of much colour and joyous noise, and one that which we know there was drink at, there was wine. Very often we are told that uh, in Jesus' Palestine the water was polluted so, and unfit for human consumption, therefore people alternatively drank wine. However, the water of that period of time is actually perfectly fine for drinking. Wine was set aside for special occasions. And in the Jewish wedding feast, it was essential to have wine. Not so that the, the guests could drink to excess, but because it was a symbol of celebration and exhilaration. The Jews looked upon wine as a God-given gift. Indeed, we are told in Psalm 104, verse 15, that it gladdens the heart of man. But in verse 3, we see that disaster strikes. The joyous occasion could now turn into a scandal because Jesus is informed by his mother, Mary, that the wine has run out. This is essential element of the wedding feast has run out. So it was the responsibility of the wedding host to provide wine for the whole seven days of the celebration. We're not told of the circumstances as to why the wine had run out, but all we, we're just told the crucial fact that it had. But I cannot convey the seriousness of running out of wine. At the very least, it was a very embarrassing situation, and it was poor social etiquette. But at a more serious level, it could actually lead to a lawsuit against the groom's family. So disaster had most definitely struck the wedding celebration that Jesus was at. But in this major mo uh, moment of crisis, Mary comes to Jesus. She did not expressly ask Jesus to perform a miracle, but her words seemed to look to him for nothing less. Mary knew the circumstances of Jesus' birth. She knew him to be God's Messiah. We know that Jesus was about 30 years old when he started his public ministry. And it is very possible that Mary was thinking to herself, Jesus, when are you going to begin your work as Messiah? You know, you've been proclaimed as such, you've got followers, but when are you going to actually start? Maybe this would be the ideal time to do something. But Jesus' response in verse 4 is quite unexpected. Dear woman, why involve me? I think that for any man gathered here this morning, if we were to approach our mothers in such a way, we would be quite severely reprimanded, but, and quite rightly so, but Jesus' response in the original Greek is not as it, how it appears to us. Jesus' response is not uh, rude, but it is a, it's a mere formality, as we would expect from Jesus. He uses it, the same form of address to the woman caught in the act of adultery, which we read about in John 8, and then again to his mother at, at the cross, John 19, and then to Mary Magdalene at the tomb in John 20. But what perhaps is a bit unusual why Jesus is being so formal with his mother, sorry, what perhaps is a bit unusual about Jesus being so formal with his mother, but Jesus' formality here in verse four marks a changed relationship 
between him and his mother as he enters into his public ministry. Jesus is not simply Mary's son, but he is God's Messiah. He is the Lamb of God who must be active in doing God's will and work. So at the end of verse 4, Jesus tells Mary that his time has not yet come. He effectively saying here that it is not yet his time to act. Only at the crucifixion hour would Jesus' time truly come. For Jesus, the cross was at the centre of his ministry. The very reason he came to earth was to defeat sin and death. And as we progress through John's account of Jesus' ministry, we will see how Jesus' line, my hour has not yet come, changes to the hour that has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus was most not definitely taking his direction from his mother, but from his heavenly Father. Yet after his response to Mary, he still goes on to deal with the problem at hand. Despite Jesus' response to Mary, her reactions in verse 5 indicate that she believed that Jesus was not unminded to deal with this situation, the present dilemma, and that he would take the appropriate action. So as, as such, she asked the servants to obey Jesus' commands. And Mary gets it absolutely spot on here. When the problem arose, she took it to Jesus, casting her cares on him, fully trusting in him. Jesus is loving and considerate. And when we need him, he comes to our aid quickly. A bit like the wine running out here, life for us doesn't usually go as we plan it and as we would like it to. Invariably, problems arise, but Jesus understands our pains and knows our need. We too need to take our problems to him, leaving them fully knowing that he loves and cares for us. In verse 6 to 9, we see that Jesus completed the first of his signs. We read that he miraculously turned the water into wine. And the natural process of turning water into wine is a, a slow one. Grapes must be grown, picked, and crushed. The juice put into vats and fermented before finally being turned into wine. But Jesus microscoped this whole process into an instant miracle. Yes, Jesus instantly averts disaster for the wedding couple. We see that Jesus is the joy giver and he's the one that sustains joy. He keeps the party going. So this miracle of turning water into wine, it's much more than just that. Jesus just didn't do it because it was a good thing to do. It is a sign that signifies that there is transforming, transforming power in Jesus. In verse 6, John draws attention to the presence of six large jars, water jars that were used for carrying out ritual Jewish purification. Before eating, it would have been customary for all the guests to wash their hands. And each time they ate, this process would be uh, repeated. And with such a sizable wedding, a lot of water would have been required. And John tells us that there is a minimum of 120 gallons available. Jesus asks the servants to fill up the six jars with water, so they fill them to the brim. We may think, what is so significant about these pots? Why has John included this in his gospel? Well, these pots, they point to the old Jewish traditional rituals. And through this first sign of Jesus, we learn that such legalistic ritual was not 
was now going to give way to the wine of the gospel, the new age, Jesus himself. The observance of the law was no longer the way of uh, salvation, including this ritual washing. It had now changed into Jesus, the wine of the gospel. Jesus alone was and is the only way of salvation. In verse 10, we read that the wine that Jesus made was the best. The astonishment of the master of ceremonies that the wine was kept to the end doesn't allude just to the fact that it was sublime, but it had a much deeper meaning than that. It points to the reality that God in dealing with humanity has saved the best wine until now. The time when he sent his son and ushered in his kingdom. The start of the talk I referred to the New Exodus. And in performing the sign of turning water into wine, Jesus points to the New Exodus. If you cast your minds back to the book of Exodus, chapters 4 and 7, you will no doubt recall that God gave Moses signs. The man that he chose to lead his people out of captivity in Egypt. And you'll remember that the signs he gave them were transforming the staff into a snake and also his hand becoming leprous like snow. Where the Israelites believed these signs, Pharaoh did not. Therefore, God enabled Moses to perform other signs, the first of which was turning Egypt's water into blood in order to convince Pharaoh to let God's people go. In both the book of Exodus and here in John's gospel, the signs of transforming water into blood and water into wine prepare the way for an exodus. Namely, God is acting to save his people. The first of Jesus' miraculous signs and the other six that will follow on in John's gospel point to the new exodus, which Jesus brings eternal life to all people who repent of their sins. So what significance does Jesus' first sign as recorded for John have for us? It points that Jesus alone brings joy to life and that he doesn't skimp with what, just as with the water in the jars that he turned into wine, he overflows our lives with joy. Doesn't mean that we're always going to, you know, doesn't mean that we won't face uh, difficulties or suffering, but that we know that, that in Jesus, we have a savior who was, a, who was a familiar with suffering himself. He knows all about that, he can identify with us. But the thrill of God's news and Jesus Christ is bound up with the joy of God's salvation, found uniquely in Jesus. Despite what some people think and say, Jesus is not a killjoy. We know from Luke's gospel in chapter 4 that the Pharisees accused him of being a, a drunkard and a glutton. He's, not guilty of, he's guilty of neither charge because he is the spotless lamb of God who is free of all sin. But I believe it is not discourteous to state that Jesus was a party person. After all, he attended many feasts and other celebrations. He had dinner with publicans and all types of people. He brought joy into the lives of many. But Jesus, he wants each of us to enjoy life to the full, but he wants us to enjoy it with him included. We too mustn't shy away from spending time with our non-Christian friends and acquaintances and work colleagues but we must be distinctive in these relationships living out our faith and conformity to Jesus 
God doesn't want us to live in separation or isolation in a bubble, but share the new wine of the gospel with others in an authentic way. Our distinctiveness should be a signpost to Jesus. People should be able to see and desire to taste Jesus through our witness for him. In verse 10, we see that John implies that life gets better as it progresses, while life without Jesus soars. Such a lifestyle may taste and appear good at the start, but the natural wines of life, the idols that maybe prevent us from entering into a relationship or having a, a brilliant one with Jesus, a proper one, lose their sparkle. The sensual, the visual, and the intellectual joys of life do not endure and will not endure. Often when these things appear at their best, the exhilaration of life fails, and instead there exists a cavity of emptiness and discontent, a gap for some greater fulfillment. But no matter how people attempt to, to fill in this void, this gap, whether it be a new relationship, ban a yacht or a 3D TV, whatever, it will never be plugged without Jesus. Jesus and joy go hand in hand as evidenced throughout the Gospels and the letters. In verse 21 of Luke chapter 10, Jesus is described as being full of joy. And the verb used here is exult, which is to be ecstatically happy. This is the joy we all desire to possess, and Jesus is the only provider of it. In verse 11, we see that when Jesus turned the water into wine, he manifested his glory and his disciples believed. What John crucially tells us here in this section of the narrative is that Jesus is the Lamb of God. The first sign is pointing, uh, sign, po sign pointing him as being the Messiah. Nathaniel, as we had read last week, had already believed, but now it had dawned in these other disciples, and they too believe. So in the first 11 verses of John chapter 2, John recorded the first sign of Jesus that points to him to being the Lamb of God, the Messiah. I wonder how people reacted back then when they heard about his miraculous sign of turning the water into wine. I'm sure they were flowing with joy and what a great present it would have been for both the bride and the groom. Likewise, we should be overflowing with joy that Jesus is the Lamb of God, the new Exodus, who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for John's record of Jesus. We thank you that Jesus is the transformer of lives, that he is the joy giver, the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Lord, we give thanks for him and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.